We're back for another episode and another series of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And we are going to be talking about something known as church planting movements. That's right. Before we get into that, I want to tell a story. Story time with Sean. Here we go. Here we go. A little over six years ago, six and a half years ago, I met Russell Berger for the first time uh, doing evangelism outside of the abortion clinic in our area. We immediately hit it off. We had the same heart, same mind. We were preaching the same gospel uh, out there in front of the death mill. And uh, we connected, and, and, and after that, not long after that, Russell, you reached out to me, and you invited me to come to a seminar you were teaching. Training session. A training session. Do you remember what the name of that was? I don't remember. Uh, I don't, but it was at a local church. Yep. And it was on something called Four Fields. Four Fields. And so you were one of the instructors. This was at a Southern Baptist church. We were in the basement. And and I'm, yeah, I, I like you. I'm happy to support you. Want to hear, maybe you got some good stuff to share with me. So I go and I sit and listen to you on your whiteboard, just like, you know, your CrossFit days. You're a teacher, man. You, you crushed it. You went up there and... You taught on the four fields model of missions, uh, a way that we can go about uh, reaching the the world, reaching the nations with the gospel. And uh, when you when you finished, you came up and we talked a little bit, and you said, "Sean, uh, what do you think? What do you think about this stuff?" And I said, "How does the local church fit into any of this?" And do you remember how you responded? I think I said. Oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> That's basically what you said. And then you grabbed the guy who was kind of like really in charge of the event, and he came over, and I asked him the same question, and he essentially gave the same answer. And I said, oh, that's something you might want to think about, the local church and the Great Commission. And, uh, and you did think about it. That was about six and a half years ago. And now, here we are today... In this episode, we're going to be critiquing the very thing you were teaching to that basement full of people. Almost. So so we won't critique it in this episode, but this whole series Correct. is going to be a critique on things like what I was teaching. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I do have that personal experience in this area, and I spent... I spent a solid year with a bunch of uh, brothers and sisters from the church we were members at at the time... Uh, sort of learning these methods, these strategies for missions, uh, learning from gurus who were, yeah. you know, traveling teachers in this stuff and getting really sucked into the world of uh, what is sometimes called church planting movements, mm -hmm. disciple making movements, four fields, training for trainers. You, right. You'll hear a lot of these terms uh, if you just, if you have any interaction with missionaries or, or have your your toe in the waters of, of modern missions, you're going to, you're going to recognize some of these phrases. Uh, and so I, I kind of drank that Kool-Aid for a while. Yeah. And uh, in the Lord's providence, uh, I ran into you and got a much better understanding of the local church and then a better understanding of how to read scripture. Mm. Uh, and over time, I began to see a lot of very concerning issues with the stuff that I used to think about how we as Christians should carry out the Great Commission. Yeah. Uh, and then more recently, I spent about six months researching this stuff really in-depth, yeah. uh, reading every book on it historically I could get my hands on, interviewing a lot of different people, uh, doing some basically just for nine marks, trying to get some some solid research done, and basically prepared a series for this podcast without meaning to. So all the work's been done, <laughs> yes. now we get to sit down and talk about it. So thank you for sharing that slightly embarrassing story. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
the reason that I wanted you to share that, and I'm glad that you remembered it, two reasons, actually. Number one, we, we want to approach this subject from a posture of humility. Yeah. You know, I was, I was waist deep in this stuff. I thought it was great. Uh, and, and got really sucked into the strategies and the ideas and the, and the biblical interpretations. And I want it, I want it to be clear that all the, the brothers who I did this with, I think they had very good intentions. Right. I think they sincerely loved the Lord. They want to see lost people saved. Uh, and so we, this isn't, as you put it earlier, this is an intramural discussion. Yeah. We are talking to other Christians, other faithful Christians and missionaries, uh, and critiquing their understanding of missions, uh, but trying at the same time to show love to them. Right. The second reason that I'm glad you brought that story up uh, is because when you start to critique these methods, mm -hmm. there is a lot of pushback. I think you'll be surprised, listeners, uh, to learn that this will. We're anticipating this to be the most controversial thing we've talked about. Yeah, and there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. Uh, but when you do critique church planning movements, one of the first things that gets thrown back at you almost always is, "Well, you're not a missionary. You don't have experience in this stuff, so you can't comment." Yeah. Well, we have someone who has been immersed in this stuff for a long time. You, uh, me, and who taught it even. Yeah. Uh, not not for a long time, but I did teach it and I was yeah. very familiar with it. And uh, the people who implemented it, I've kept in touch with for years. Yeah. And then you who were a missionary. I was a missionary. So we, and I saw the effects, so on and so forth. We have experience in this. Um, and it is, it's not something that, we, we don't want that objection to get in the way of people actually hearing our biblical critiques of these methodologies. Right. And even if you had never taught in it or, you know, anything like that, even if I hadn't been a missionary, I think what we're going to say here is still true biblically. Amen. Well, let's jump into it. Let's start just by uh, asking the, the most obvious question, what are multiplying movements? But before you answer that, let me just be clear that we're going to be using the term multiplying movements but you may also hear what 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 other terms might you hear? Disciple yeah, you'll making hear movements. disciple making movements, uh, which is David Watson wrote a book of that okay. title. Uh, you'll hear about church planting movements, which is probably the most popular and most common term for this stuff. Yeah. Uh, David Garrison was okay. the author of that book. Um, Miraculous movements is a is a popular book by Jerry Trousdale, and uh, incorporates almost all the same ideas. Uh, if you've ever heard of the perspectives course, yeah, it's a missions course yeah. that is, you know you get from time to time in different cities. That traveling teachers teach the perspectives course. I had that as my textbook in Bible college for okay. missions. Uh, the perspectives course, which was really started by Ralph Winter and and a number of others, uh, it, it contains these same ideas. Okay, uh, training for trainers by Steve Smith is a popular methodology. Same principles under the hood. Uh, no place left which is really a network of, of missionaries who practice these methods. Okay. Uh, it's it's like-minded missionaries. Like-minded right? missionaries. Just yeah. like Nine Marks is a lot of like-minded, ecclesiologically like-minded pastors. These are missiologically like-minded missionaries. That's right. Okay. Uh, and then a little bit more outside of this umbrella would be things like the house church movement. Francis uh, Chan. I'm thinking of, yeah, Francis Chan's recent letters to the church. Uh, mm -hmm. You have a lot of similar themes and similar misunderstandings in his work uh, that even other guys who are deep in disciple-making movement will reference him as supporting their ideas. Right. So all of this stuff we're putting under the umbrella of multiplying movements. And so that's the phrase we're going to be using throughout this series. That's multiplying right. Multiplying movements. Now, the reason that I want to use that umbrella is, you know, sort of like when we did our previous series on, on critical theory, like there's all kinds of different theories, right. critical right. theories, but it's helpful to just get one big, 
uh, approximation that you can deal with more easily. And then when you come to discrepancies and nuances, well, you can kind of parse those details out as you get there. But you see the same DNA That's right. across the board. And so the same DNA, but there's a fundamental principle, which we'll get to in a minute, okay. that all of these have in common. And then we're going to list a bunch of the sort of differences that you might find between the different flavors of them. Okay. So we're not going to define it quite yet. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Okay. Yeah. First, ne- first, I want to go into why we're even talking about this. Okay. So point number one, or the first reason why, these methods are very, very popular. Um, They're everywhere. In, in, yeah. In, in, in most evangelical missions strategies, you will find this stuff either explicit and ubiquitous, or you'll find the essence of it kind of weaved in, especially amongst the, the people that we think we'd probably consider to be closest to us theologically, ecclesiologically, Southern Baptists. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, the, the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, this is basically all they do, okay. with rare exception. I mean, it's the majority of the missions coming out of the IMB are influenced by, strongly, or have completely adopted this, these strategies. And I'm assuming we're going to do an episode on the history of the development of these ideas. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And in there, we'll explore more about the, the relationship between the IMB and this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Second reason yeah. is though this began as sort of a missions strategy, uh, the popularity of, of disciple-making movements, church planning movements in particular, has, has worked backwards into the States. Yeah. So we have churches now local churches, both small and mega churches, uh, that are looking at what they're doing and saying, we've got to adopt something different, and we're going to adopt these multiplying movement strategies for the local church. Giving you an example of what this might look like in the American context, uh, you hear a pastor share a vision about wanting to plant 10 churches in 10 years. Is that is that this? Very similar. Very yeah. similar. The same kind, the same essence. Yeah. Right. One of the one of the most uh, the biggest examples that that some may have heard of would be uh, there's a mega church in uh, I believe it's Texas. The pastor's name is Chris Galanos, okay. and they basically shut down their entire mega church, thousands of members, and forced people to go out into these little home groups and start implementing the disciple making movement methods immediately. Mm. Um, and so we're going to unpack like, you know, what could be wrong with that. Yeah. Why would we want to not think that way? What were some of the misunderstandings that led to that? Uh, and so, again, you see this stuff now stateside uh, being applied in local churches as opposed yeah. to you know Southeast Asia. The third reason why we're talking about this, Russell? Yeah, so though, again, I want to be careful here. We think that we, we want to be charitable. Yeah. The people who are teaching these methods, who are implementing these methods, are likely very well-intended. They Again, they, they likely love the Lord and just want to see lost people saved. That's yeah. how I was when I was sucked into this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I saw it as a genuinely good thing. Like, wow, this, this is producing fruit. However, we think that these multiplying movements and their underlying assumptions are deeply flawed and actually undermine and work against the church's uh, faithfulness in carrying out the Great Commission. Yeah, in future episodes where we really dig into the critique of of these movements, uh, I think people will come to see that 
bad missions actually inoculates the nations to the gospel of yeah. Jesus Christ. And so we may actually be setting ourselves back as even as we think that we are moving forward at exponentially greater and greater speeds. Right. That's right. This very much reminds me of our of our episodes on critical race theory. Uh, a lot of people who are bought into it or who are influenced by it, even if they don't know it, are well-intentioned. They want to do good. They want to fight against racism. And so they employ these tactics, not knowing that it's actually perpetuating racism. Very similar. Very similar. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's let's try to understand what multiplying movements are. And, and like most things, we immediately kind of run into a, a brick wall. Uh, hard to define. Yeah, hard to define. It's kind of like the prosperity gospel, right? There, there's so many different iterations of the prosperity gospel. It may look one way in South America. It may look another way in the suburbs of Illinois. Uh, of, of Illinois. But what we've said with things like the prosperity gospel is that even though it may manifest itself differently, there are kind of these core elements where wherever you see these things, there a prosperity gospel church is. That's right. So what are the core elements? What are the, the unifying principles of the multiplying movements? Yeah, it's, that's a great way to put it. So behind, you know, under the hood of all of these things, despite how different they may look in certain features, is the belief, first of all, that movements exist. Mm. So a movement in this context is a large-scale conversion of a group of people okay. to Christianity. And that may be a large-scale conversion within a particular uh, ethno-linguistic group okay. or a community or a city. Uh, and, and generally, in, in pretty quickly, you're going to see all these conversions happen, and that's what gives it the title of movement. Okay. So that's the first thing, is that these things exist, and they are spiritually good and spiritually genuine, okay. meaning you actually have real conversions. Mm. You actually have people who are uh, genuinely saved, not just a bunch of emotional fervor and and false professions, but but they're real and they're good. Okay. Now, the second half of that is that these movements, this is key, these movements can be reverse engineered. Mm, so reverse engineered. Multiplying movements believe that you can reverse engineer these conversions of large groups of people. So basically, we can look at a, a particular movement, uh, kind of break it down, tear it apart, and then fig put it back together again, and we can figure out how it was put together in the first place, and then we can just replicate that yeah. anywhere we want to. That, that's what reverse engineering is. You know, you, you buy a product off the shelf from your competitor, take it apart, figure out how they built it. I'm like, oh, we're going to go make one of these, and we're going to sell it for half the price. Yeah, this is not the first time the Church of Christ has encountered these ideas. No, no. This this concept of being able to look at the the details of how a movement, a conversion movement happened, find the catalysts, find the patterns, and then take that and try and recreate it in one one's own timing and one's own strength. Yeah. Is uh, really it goes all the way back to the revivalism of the 1800s, the Second Great Awakening. That's right. First Great Awakening seemed to be a genuine move of the Spirit of God. Yeah, thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. Second Great Awakening, uh, they were like, "Guys, what are we doing here? Let's do it again. We got to do this again." And people like Charles Finney, yeah, said, well, they, "Hey, they looked at the First Great Awakening, yeah. and said, we can make that happen. We can do it again." And so throughout history, and we're going to, like you said, we're going to do an episode on the, sure. the history of this because I think it's very helpful in understanding what's wrong with these ideas. Uh, but through the, the centuries and the decades, these things have been called mass conversion movements. 
Uh, they've been called people group movements. And then only more recently have they been called church planting movements, disciple making movements. Uh, and, and so it's important to know that these are not brand new ideas. No, just like all bad ideas, they're just repackaging of older bad ideas. That's right. It's yeah. nothing new under the sun. Uh, for our readers who are interested in, in exploring this idea, go read Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism. You will not regret it. It is an excellent book. Excellent read. Yeah. So here's here's an analogy to help you understand this, this fundamental unifying principle of multiplying movements. Okay. It's kind of like science. Mm. So in science... You're looking around at the natural world. There's these uniform principles that don't change, like gravity. Right. So the force of gravity is constant, and we can then kind of measure how it works. We can time things. We can weigh things. And when we sort of figure out how all these you know, natural laws work together, we can make predictions because we know they're the same always. So you crack the code on gravity— and now you can shape a plane wing so that the plane stays in the air when it's got enough speed. Mm. The same concept is being taken and applied to evangelism with multiplying movements. They're saying, if you study these movements, these mass conversions, these, these great awakenings, you can find out what caused them, you can find the principles at work and the catalysts at work, and then you can go do that somewhere else. And every time you do that, predictably, consistently, you will get the same results. Yeah. Uh, and when you take this logic to its extreme, that means that the failure to create one of these movements is a failure on the part of the missionary to faithfully do what he or she's supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, and so it's... It, very different from how Protestants have traditionally understand. I say traditionally prior to the Second Great Awakening, understood sure. the way God works in conversion. And more importantly, it's just uh, it's just not a biblical way. I mean, yeah, Protestants have thought well about missions in the past, but anybody who just comes to their open Bible, who has the Spirit living in them, yeah. who can illuminate their eyes to the truth, should see that this is very, very unhealthy. Amen. Yeah. And we're going to, again, we're going to get more to critique in sure. future episodes. We're just trying to define here. Uh, yeah. And, and so that's the single unifying principle. Uh, there are other characteristics that all of these multiplying movements tend to share. They don't all share these, but these are useful identifiers. Okay, so let's start with the first one. Yeah. Emphasis on speed. Can I can I read this quote from Garrison? Yeah, David Garrison. David this is Garrison. the uh, the author of Church Planting Movements, kind of the forerunner in yeah. the 2000s of this stuff. Mm, the godfather, if you will. Mm -hmm. First, a church planting movement reproduces rapidly. Within a very short time, newly planted churches churches are already starting new churches that follow the same pattern of rapid reproduction. How rapid is rapid, you may ask? Well, perhaps the best answer is faster than you think possible. Church planting movements always outstrip population growth rate as they race toward reaching the entire people group. Let's think about that for just a second. Yeah. Again, not not criticizing yet in yeah. this episode. We don't want to do a deep dive, but but just note that he's defining these movements as rapid. So a movement that's not rapid is not a movement. Right. Uh, and the expectation is again that these movements will always outstrip population growth. So yeah. again, there's that language of constancy and uniformity that you see in the sciences. Yeah. Gravity always pulls to the, to the Earth's center at the same level of force. Mm -hmm. And yeah. now we have David Garrison, these movements always, when done properly, outstrip population growth. Yeah, I had uh, 
our intern read on church planning movements and, and offer his thoughts. And, and one of the things that he put in his paper that really blew him away was there's such an emphasis on speed that they even explicitly say that they're not even concerned with finding qualified elders, right? Because there's just no time for that. That's right. So, again, not critiquing. But uh, if you want to know practically what an emphasis on speed looks like, it looks like we have to plant a new church so fast that even if we don't have a qualified man to lead that church, that doesn't factor into the equation. That's right. Okay. Number two, a task priority view of the return of Christ. Yeah, task priority. Uh, So finish the task is a popular motto that sprung up uh, around, I think it was the 70s and 80s with Ralph Winter and became very popular from then on. And it's based, uh, the multiplying movement practitioners view this idea of finishing the task as the central goal of missions. And they take that uh, from Matthew 24, 14, which I'll read to us here. Okay. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so they read that verse and they interpret that to mean that we as missionaries— they kind of clump this together with the Great Commission, mm-hmm. are to go out and preach the gospel everywhere to all people groups, to all nations, to all languages. And as soon as we get to that last group of indigenous mm-hmm. people on that island that's never seen civilization, yeah. then Jesus comes back. And what that turns into is the idea that we are the ones who bring about the return of Christ mm-hmm. through our efforts here on earth. Yeah, And here you see how that ties into the, the demand for rapidity, for speed. Yeah, Because the faster we can get this done, the faster Jesus comes back and fixes everything. Can I read a quote? Yeah, please do. What matters most is not that the peoples can be counted, but that God has given us a task that can be completed. Matthew 24, 14 makes it clear that we must make it our first priority to see that every people has a living testimony of the gospel of the kingdom. And then in here you have in brackets the irreducible essential mission task is in fact the only task given to his people that actually has a completable dimension to it. So that's yeah, yeah that's the marching orders for these multiply movements is bring back Christ. Yeah. Number 3. Yep. A belief that multiplying movements are biblical and prescriptive. So before we get into that, let's just make sure uh, everyone's on the same page about what we mean when we say prescriptive, right? Yep. So uh, we talk about when we read the Bible, some things that we find there are descriptive, that is, they merely describe what was happening, and then some things are prescriptive, that is, they prescribe actions that must be taken, and then a lot of times there's overlap, right? Mm-hmm. There's kind of like a Venn diagram. It's descriptive, but it's describing things that we should very much be doing. But wisdom and uh, knowing how to be careful handlers of God's Word means that we're very careful about trying to distinguish between that which is really descriptive and that which is prescriptive in the Bible. Yeah, and I would add to that that you can get into a lot of trouble as a Christian not thinking carefully about those categories as you read things like the book of Acts, for example. Yeah. Uh, You know, not everything that they did in the first century— as the foundation of the church is being laid by the apostles, is something that we are called to reproduce today. Does it mean that it's not uh, profitable for us to learn from, that there's Amen. not principles there that apply to our lives? We think all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for for godliness, right? Well, and the other thing I'd add to that is everyone recognizes these categories. They just pick and choose we, how they apply it. We just yeah. don't always agree on which one is which. Yeah. So I don't know of a single church out there today today that draws lots 
to uh, replace pastors when someone dies, yeah. you know, uh, like they did in Acts when they're trying to replace, replace the 12. Yeah. Uh, so this is important because one of the things we're going to talk about a lot as we critique multiplying movements is that they tend to read uh, particularly the book of Acts, but also elements of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of Luke 9 and Matt, Matthew 10, where we have Jesus sending out the 12 uh, on their initial journey through through Judea. Yeah. Uh, they read those in a, a very unusual way and find prescriptions where prescriptions don't exist. Yeah. It was a, a unique historical event, and we think it needs to be uh, replicated. I, I remember when I sat in your class, when you were teaching the four field strategy, you used Matthew 10. That's right. Uh, you, and then the the person of peace and all this. And and if this is how they did it, then this is how we should do it. And, uh, you know, today we ask questions like, are, are we sending our missionaries out with swords? And, yeah. you know. Well, and that's, and that's sort of back to my point about everyone has these categories. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, just are you, yeah, are you doing it consistently? So let me give you a quote that that really summarizes, captures this mentality. Uh, this is from Chris Galanos, who I mentioned earlier. If we want to see results like they saw in the book of Acts, we have to do what they did in the book of Acts. That's a pretty good quote. Yeah. So you, here you have, uh, both the idea that what happened in Acts is prescriptive for the church, but now we're also back to this idea of uniform principles. If you do X, Y, Z, in exactly the right way, then you'll get the same result every time. It's just like science. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Fourth characteristic, an emphasis on cultural neutrality. So I was pretty familiar with multiplying movements uh, before we were preparing for, for these episodes. But this is the one characteristic that I was not super familiar with. So can, can you elaborate on that? An emphasis on cultural neutrality. Yeah, so uh, many practitioners within multiply movements will argue uh, that external forms of culture have no bearing on a person's conversion. Uh, That's kind of up there in the clouds. Yeah. Bring it down. Yeah, so so basically, if you have faith in Jesus personally, uh, then you're not required to do anything differently in the cultural forms that that you have for your whole life. So if you happen to be a Muslim, for example, uh, this is more of an extreme example, but a lot of multiplying movement practitioners would say that if you're a Muslim and you come to recognize Jesus uh, as your personal savior, mm-hmm. then you can keep being a Muslim. You can continue to worship in the mosques. That's right. Yeah. You can continue you can to worship Jesus in the mosque. That's right. You can continue to do all of the the external things that identify mm-hmm. you as a Muslim. Uh, after this supposed conversion. Mm-hmm. And so the actual principle Sorry, here... Yep. Pause real quick. Uh, earlier, you said that that is an extreme example. Yeah. But it's a real example. It's really common. It's Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you've heard of the insider movement, this is the kind of stuff that you find there. Yeah. And there's a lot of overlap between insider movements and the, the misunderstandings of conversion we see there and multiplying movements. These, okay. these camps coexist in many places. Uh, we're not going to get too far into insider movements in no. the series, but know that it's there. And when I say extreme, don't misunderstand that for rare. Uh, right. <laughs> it is not rare. It yeah. is actually very common in these movements. And and so the the general principle there I think is a good one that when you are converted your cultural sort of these neutral cultural elements that that you have from whatever society you live in they don't all have to go away. Right. Um and that's true for us in in the United States. Mm-hmm. However, what these movements identify as neutral cultural elements are very often infused with pagan superstition and assumptions. They're things that need to go away. 
Yeah. And so, and, and again, this kind of gets back to the idea of we need speed, we need rapidity. And so we want to reduce anything that might cost too much or might look too difficult or might create a stumbling block for people to just give this bare minimum profession of faith in Christ to the point that you actually end up with, with heresy yeah. and syncretism uh, between Muslim beliefs and Christianity. Wow. All right. Uh, this has been the hardest episode to just describe and not critique, but we will power through. We are failing miserably. We, <laughs> number five, fifth characteristic, multiplying movements emphasize obedience over conversion. Yeah. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah. So the, the emphasis of obedience over conversion, uh, if you're hearing that, you're probably already thinking, well, that's a false dichotomy. You yeah. know, those two things should go together. Right. Um, well, you're right. <laughs> and uh, multiplying movement practitioners, they draw a very sharp, hard line between what they would call obedience-based discipleship and knowledge-based discipleship. Okay. Uh, and so this has led to something that many listeners may have heard called a discovery Bible study. Uh, I believe those were started by the Watsons after the the publication of their uh, dis- disciple-making movements is when I, when I first learned about this, but it's used throughout T4T and No Place Left. That there are many people who use this discovery Bible study. Uh, and the idea is that it prioritizes above all else the do aspect of the Christian life. Uh, so, so Zane Pratt, uh, who's a, a missionary and writer, he contrasts this with historic Christianity, which is always emphasize this triad of be, know, and do. So all aspects of the Christian life, uh, including the the heart and the emotions and the affections and the desires, uh, as well as your outward external obedience to Christ uh, and your recognition and knowledge of who you are and what the gospel is, all those things have to come together Yeah, in, in, in a real conversion. Yeah, and, and to be to be charitable, again, as we're, we said, this is an intramural conversation. We are... Uh, critiquing people who we think are on the same team, Mm -hmm. we can understand how someone could read the Great Commission, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, and get to uh, an uh, obedience-centric view of the Great Commission. Having said that, it's still very wrong and very dangerous. So I also want to give credit to multiplying movements on this point, uh, because I think what's happening with Discovery Bible Studies uh, is is an overreaction to a genuine problem, which is in America, we have evangelical churches all over the place that are full of nominal Christians, mm-hmm. people who know a great deal about the gospel and about God and who profess faith and yet go out and live in ways that are totally contrary to the gospel. And so I think what you have here is a, is a pendulum swing too far in the other direction, but I do want to acknowledge that, that nominalism is, is very obviously a problem in our yeah. country. Yeah, all right, the sixth characteristic is that multiplying movements redefine and or de-emphasize the local church. So we've kind of come full circle to the story that I told at the beginning, right? You, you taught the the four fields model, and it seemed like there's a lot of good stuff in there. And it's, people were certainly getting pretty excited about it, right? And uh, I think I remember telling you that even if I didn't fully agree with everything, uh, most things that get people excited about evangelism will, will bear some evangelistic fruit. Uh, but my question for you and for the guy who was uh, in charge of that thing was, what happens with these people when they actually get saved, right? Where does the church factor into this? And uh, according to uh, according to our notes here, uh, <laughs> it doesn't affect it doesn't factor into it very much at all. Yeah, that again. 
this is going to depend on which subspecies of multiplying movements you're talking about. So, right. so church planting movements, I mean, the word church is in the name. They're at least genuinely trying to reproduce churches. Right. Uh, whether or not they have a good definition of a church is for a future episode. Sure. But then you have things like disciple-making movements, which very intentionally takes church planting movements, deletes the word church, and then takes a lot of the same characteristics and applies them differently. The 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 rally cry that I've heard to 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 justify that is Jesus said, go out and make disciples. He didn't say go out and plant churches. Right. Another way you'll often hear uh practitioners of of these movements talk about that is they'll say, you can go out and plant a church, but not make disciples. But if you go out and make disciples, you'll end up with a church. Mm. Clever wordsmithing there. We're not critiquing. Uh, not so, <laughs> so yeah, and one of the issues here is that multiplying movements tend to read their Bible and see, again, we're back to the idea of prescription and description. They tend to see very little prescribed for the local church. Mm-hmm. So they would look at things like formal Sunday gatherings, uh, preaching from the pulpit, having uh, qualified men leading the church as appointed elders. Yeah. And they would look at that and they would say, you know, best case scenario, you don't have to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just a description. It's not something you, you're required to do uh, by scripture. Worst case scenario, they would say, well, these are just Western cultural values that we can just get rid of right. because they're not helpful outside of the United States. So um, let's let's have a quote from one of the proponents of uh, the DMM stuff, Ray Moran. Moran. Uh, this is what he says a church is. A church is a group of people who relate to God through obedience to his wisdom in the Bible. Do you want to stop after each one of these and, and make ah, a little comment just, on it? Let's just do the whole thing. It's also uh, a group of people who relate to one another through regular connections for mutual encouragement and challenges. And then finally, it's a group of people who relate to their world by bringing God's order from heaven to earth through multiplicative disciple-making. Two things jump out at me there. Only two? They're big ones. Okay. Uh, And I'm trying to be brief. Uh, The first one is that this definition of a church already has multiplicative movements baked into it. Mm. So you see that he's taking this this paradigm, uh, DMM, multiplying movements, this strategy, and he is working it back into the very definition of what a church is. And here's where you see uh, the, the idea that this stuff is biblical and it's the way to do missions. Uh, on full display. You know, these these practitioners, more often than not, they're not selling you on a just sort of a, a strategy that you could take or leave. Right. They're not saying this is one way to do missions. Mm-hmm. They're saying this is the Bible's prescribed way of carrying out the Great Commission. And if you care about Jesus coming back, you will get on board. Right. And if you don't, from this definition, you may not even have a church. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing. Second thing is is these things are generally true of a church. Mm-hmm. It's generally true that God's people in a local church will relate to God through obedience to his wisdom in the Bible, will relate to one another and regular connections for encouragement and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. I mean, that's not wrong. It's just, it's missing so many vital God-prescribed, providentially ordained aspects of what the local church is. Yeah, I would just say it's missing the very essence of what a church is. The essence of what a church is is people who are uh, bought by the same Lord, purchased by His blood, and dwelt by the same Spirit. People who are converted and yeah. covenanted together. That's right. So, so, so your in your point there, I would, I would challenge you to read that definition again, and and think: Could this be describing 
non-converted people? Mm. And the answer is yes. Mm. So this this definition of a church is so limited that non-Christians could fit into these categories very easily. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah. Russell, to close out the episode, let me tell you one more little story. I was recently speaking with a member of my church about uh, church planting movements and uh, how bad they are. <laughs> and he was kind of taken aback. Not, not, not significantly, but I think it's because... It's kind of like, and not to go back to CRT too much, but it's like when you tell someone that you're opposed to anti-racism. They hear that and they go, how could you ever, right? What they don't know is that anti-racism is actually loaded and it's actually racism uh, in disguise. The same thing is true of something like church planting movements. Right, you're against churches being planted? And and quickly? How could you be against that? Well... I think you're going to see in the coming weeks. I hope so. We, we are going to be critiquing uh, multiplying movements, not because we don't want to see churches planted, not because we don't want to see all the peoples of the earth reach with the gospel, not because we don't want to see the, the storehouse of heaven filled with as many souls as possible. It's actually because we care about those things, and we care about them so much. It's the singular passion of our lives and of our ministries. Because we care about these things so much, we feel like this has to be addressed. It has to be critiqued. Christians have to be made aware. We have to be wise in thinking about where our missions money is going, uh, who we're supporting on the field, what sorts of things we're teaching in the church, what our seminaries are putting in their missiology classes, and we could just go on and on. We have to make sure that the church is on guard against against this junk. Well, and, and we care about missionaries. I mean, yeah. We care about how missionaries are spending the little bit of time that they have in their lives and and how their labors are being expended in the field. You know, you only get one life and it is much shorter than you realize. And if you dedicate that life to the service of the Lord through evangelism and missions, we want to make sure that you at least hear this side of the multiplying movements discussion and consider that there might be a way to better spend, more faithfully spend your energy and your time and your treasure for the service of the kingdom. So, Russell, would you encourage people who are missionaries to not only watch these episodes, but also to send them to their uh, fellow missionaries, to their team leaders, to uh, maybe let's just say like, hey, if you're a missions pastor, we ask that you would lend us your ear for a few episodes, pay attention to what we're saying. Anybody else you can think of that would be a good audience for this other than just regular Christians in the church? Uh, yeah, any anyone who's giving money to missions. Yeah. Anyone uh, who has an interest in seeing that that money goes towards a faithful and biblical effort. And it's not just being squandered on the next hot new thing that's reporting results that don't mean anything. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for today. Signing off for the Defending Confirmed podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. Thanks for listening.